0: Kia ora koutou katoa, welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy, with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, kia ora koutou katoa. It's fantastic to be here on the hoon again from, I was going to say Sunny Hamilton, but it's not. I was going to say Sunny Hamilton. Jesus Christ, I don't think it is. Yeah. Actually, we're in Te Aumutu, uh, and it's all very lush and green. Oh, really? And everything is wet. And what's the sound of
1: Te Aumutu like at the moment? Just to bring in a split ends line in there. The, the sound of Te Aumutu had a truly sacred ring, I think was the um, was the
0: lyric from that? I, I won't sing it because no. we'd lose all audience completely. Well, luckily for us, the sound of Tiawamutu was an electric fan heater in a room until five minutes ago. Oh, good. But you've turned it off now. Exactly. So I've got my jacket on. I will survive and it will be um, a good evening.
1: So have you written 1,200 words yet on, um, on the state of rural New Zealand by visiting Tiawamutu?
0: Not yet. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold off on that. Here because it would be me discussing my love of grass and um, my obsession yeah. when I'm driving through the Waikato of looking at the grass and trying to assess its dry matter and its juiciness, because that's mm-hmm. what i was taught to do as a kid. Oh,
1: excellent. That's what you're brought to Yeah, yeah, the dry matter. Absolutely. I totally get that. Because yeah. when I drive through the Waikato, I think about the settlement with, um, with Tainui and how much money they got for uh, for you know as a settlement for for Waikato, mm. and um, it was quite a lot less than the value of the land around Waikato. But that just makes me sound like some sort of you know complaining Pakeha.
0: And the value will have gone up since that deal was done. And what's interesting yes. about some of those early deals is that is that they have um, relativity clauses, so that when new deals are done, their deal gets ratcheted up, which is um, how all our lives should be. In that when someone else doing... Um, uh, somebody does else- a better deal, our deal gets pulled up with it.
1: Yeah, this is this Very is good. good. All right. Now, Bernard, you've got
0: somebody to introduce us to, I think. Yes, we will um, soon hear from uh, a new person writing for the kaka. Uh, one of the things... An additional person. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, one of the things I was always keen to do, if the opportunity arose, was to bring someone... In to help flesh out and grow some of our journalism mm-hmm. around things like climate and housing. And we're very lucky that Catherine Dyer, who is a development uh, economist and academic from Auckland University, uh, who previously in a previous life worked as uh, an executive uh, working for businesses in uh, Sydney, London, mm-hmm. Toronto, and, um, is able to uh, join us and she'll be producing some podcasts uh, for um, a new podcast that we're launching uh, on contract for someone else and also helping to produce uh, articles and podcasts and interviews for the kaka.
1: And she's clearly going to do the thing that the thing that we, I've went over we and I've talked about this over the last three to five years, or possibly three to twenty years. I was talking to somebody we used to work with twenty years ago the other day who, who remembered what an incredible workaholic you were, um, which is that uh, Catherine will be helping the the classic problem
0: of making Bernard scalable. Yes, this is the problem for a, a substack writer: is that when you are able to think about growth, you end up thinking, now, how do I work longer? How many hours can I do? And um, mm. I realise that's not mm. possible, really. So um, I'm very lucky that um, Catherine has been able to to join us to help out and has a particular interest and uh, background in studying climate. And it is uh, a really, really great thing that we'll be able to uh, bring Catherine in. Um She'll also be doing quite a few interviews for a new podcast that I'll be producing about mm-hmm. the global economy and markets, which will be launched in the next week or two. I can't give you all the details, but that's that's coming. Great. And and Bernard, are, are you are you are
1: you imagining that? Because um, you know, we talked when we talked last week. I mentioned um, you know when we talked about solutions journalism, and we'll talk about that again at the end of the show a little bit today. But we. Talked about the, 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 your approach to the elections and your approach to journalism at the moment through the Carker, at least, of trying not just to, not just to have the horse race or uh, just rantograms. Although your 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 piece on um, Chris Hipkins abandoning a wealth tax was was had elements of a rantogram in it, although well worth having. And do you think Cashmore will be able to pick up that kind of idea of trying to be constructive about the important questions?
0: Yeah, and um, one of the great things in um, the first uh, few days of, of working is that um, we've been able to um, think about some of those solutions, some of the challenges, um, and uh, talk about it. Catherine, welcome in to Dakaka and De Hoon. It's lovely to see you.
2: Hello, good evening. Nice to be here.
1: Catherine, it's Peter Bale here. When he, when he, If he starts to call you a co-host, just
0: don't believe a bloody word of it, you'll be <laughs> <dirty. laughs> It's all Bernard all the time. <laughs> Welcome. It's it's lovely to see you, Catherine. Thank you very much. And we're thrilled to have you on board at the Kaka as a an interviewer, a producer, a writer, and also helping to produce podcasts elsewhere. So uh, lovely to, to see you. And I, we're very lucky. We've spent the week talking about fascinating things around uh, climate, economics, politics, Um And I'm at the moment quite transfixed by what's actually happening with the temperature of our oceans, our air, and of course, all these um, extraordinary uh, new events that we're seeing in Europe and the United States and everywhere else, new words like um, heat dome Mm -hmm. and atmospheric river. Catherine, I want to ask you about... This idea that we seem to be approaching some tipping points with the climate, and you've done some, uh, uh, had a look at some of the reportage and the reports that's out there. What do we know about these tipping points?
2: Yeah, it's certainly been quite a month um, in terms of the climate. So we've had something like 16 days in a row where the global surface temperatures have beaten all of the previous records. So, you know, going going back something like 100,000 years. So there is this question mark about whether, you know, we're starting to approach some of the um, tipping points that some of the climate scientists talk about. And, I mean, it, it sounds like it's, it's it is actually possible. We could have already passed some of those tipping mm. points. So there's a couple that start to, you know, start to approach around 1.5 degrees, but there's a range, of course, where they could... Kick in, which goes both below and above that, um, and those are things like ice sheets melting. And of course, if you pass the tipping point, it doesn't suddenly suddenly change everything. It means that um, you know those ice sheets have already been melting. Mm. But once you pass the tipping point, it means it's a process that's going to unfold over the next few thousand years. Yeah,
1: and it affects Catherine. The, my, one of my favourite words, which we is a bit too long for wordle, but albedo. Yeah. Which is the you know which is the 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 ability of ice to reflect the the light of the sun away, and of yep. course it's all going to, you know the less the, the smaller the Arctic ice sheet and the and the, the the bigger the loss in Antarctica the more the more the oceans are going to heat up right
2: yeah it becomes a, a reinforcing feedback effect and so once you go past a certain point there's nothing we can do to stop it from unfolding in the future it's mm. going to you know up until that point we can sort of stop warming. The atmosphere and stop emitting fossil fuels, but beyond that point, we can't do anything. It's going to unfold the way it's going to go. Yeah,
1: Catherine. I noticed. I noticed this week that one of the British representatives to the IPCC said there was now no chance of meeting 1.5, and the, the next likely destination was two to 2.5, with outrageous consequences. I mean mm. I, I wrote something for spin off about this week, this week I do a weekly bulletin for the spin off about world news and a couple of people gave me negative feedback which was it was too gloomy and there wasn't enough action that we can do ourselves and that was despite me putting in a at the last minute and I was thinking about it at night uh before I went back and put it in which was you know what can what can you know what can one man do to save the world uh which is a lunatic expression but there were nine items from the Grantham Climate uh, Study Organisation at uh, Imperial College, and they're pretty lame. But it it isn't just you know putting your recycling out. It really is becoming an activist, flying less, using your car less, but also critically eating less meat. And you know, and those were nine actions. And, I, mm. and like I say, I put them in to try and be less negative. But I, I admit, I did feel quite negative this week, partly because having read. IPCC reports and reported on them for several years, we had been warned that this is exactly how it plays out, and it may just be playing out a tad faster than we had anticipated.
2: Yeah, I've seen something somewhere quite recently where they they kind of said some of these issues are things that maybe aren't um, something that a lot of people in the general public need to know about because Mm. they can't affect it through their behavioural changes. So, there's definitely um, systemic changes or leverage points that can really affect things. In one the, of which
1: is politics and their right. relationship with politicians, right?
2: Yeah, and in the financial system and, uh, you know, in, in those sort of areas. So, yeah, there is a limit to what people individually can do.
1: Yeah, I'm moving all my stocks into into um, military manufacturers and tobacco Yikes. and out of oil. Yeah. Well,
0: uh, that, 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 <laughs> that's, that's one way, because there are some fund managers who literally um, focus on a particular theme and, you know, breakdown of society is... Mm those themes. And if you look at the wars um, that we've seen in in the last uh, decade or two, uh, you could argue some of them are directly about uh, competition for resources in a Mm water-scarce world. Uh, Russia's ability to attack and take over the Crimea and the Ukraine is at least in part because it has power over Europe through the gas supplies that it was giving Europe. And one of the I think one of the most fascinating things of the last year and a half is the galvanization of Europe's move to shift to renewable resources, not so much because of the climate, but because they don't want to be held over a barrel mm. by Vladimir Putin's gas. And, um, right. and it is it is really interesting that um, even though the warnings about the climate have said we need to desperately do this right now, it was other things that forced mm. us. Catherine, I wanted to talk about some of those tipping points because... I have been uh, sort of obsessively following the temperature lines for the, uh, the North Atlantic and also the ice loss for the Antarctic. You mentioned, and, and Peter also mentioned, the, the Albedo effect, the idea that within a few years, the Arctic Ocean would not be covered by ice anymore and that would heat up the water. But um, tell us a bit more, too, about the, um, the risks around methane both uh, onshore and offshore.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's something there's been a lot of debate about, you know, what's actually happening and when when those things start to kick in. So there's there's the uh, permafrost where if it starts to melt Hmm. beyond a certain point, then you get methane being released from that. And there's one argument, some people suggest that that sort of starts to kick in around the 1.5 degrees, but in other places it's more like 3 to 4 degrees before you start to get a serious amount of emissions from that, and and there's also um, methane clathrates under the ocean, I gather. But again, there's a lot of debate about how much has been released by those and whether it's really serious yet or not. Um, a lot of the increases in methane at the moment are from um, gas pipes, mm. from natural gas, um, and from fracking in the US. You know, like all of the gas that's been carried and leaks out of, there's a lot, lot more leakage. Um, going on than what was previously thought. Oh, but
1: we're, we're, just, we're only fracking so that we can make space for um, carbon capture later, and that won't leak out,
0: will it? Uh. Sure. <laughs> I'm also uh, curious, uh, Catherine, about um, James Hansen. Could you explain for our audience who James Hansen uh, is, what he's said, and, and what he's said most recently about these climate changes?
2: Yeah, James Hansen is the hockey stick guy, right? He's the the guy that um, was uh, testifying before Congress back in nineteen eighty eight, warning about all of the stuff coming, and he had his graph that showed um, Earth's surface temperatures over the last thousand years tipping up at the end, like in the in the shape of a hockey stick. And so he he was interviewed just recently, and there was a piece in the Guardian where he basically said that. You know the world is approaching a new climate frontier, and he said essentially that you know there'd been a bit of a failure of scientists to um, sufficiently warn people, or you know, to have any impact on on politicians in particular. Um, he said, and I quote, "We are damned fools." Um,
1: Excuse me, I was going to quote this, Catherine, but go right ahead.
2: <laughs> yeah, apparently said we have to taste it to believe it. Apparently.
1: Yeah, well, Catherine, I was also really struck by a piece in, in uh, Bill McKibben, who's quite a famous environmentalist journalist uh, in the New Yorker this week, and and he made a a, a point that you know our uh, there it, it had been a kind of deliberate attack on science and a deliberate attempt to undermine science during COVID, and that also found its way through to our ability to trust science in uh, climate change. And you know, I, I I have a friend who was the environment editor of the FT. And her farm father, who's not with us anymore, but was a, a farmer, was very sceptical. And she said to him once something like, "Dad, would it help if six hundred and fifty of the world's biggest climate scientists from all over the world, with no access to grind, did an assessment, you know, and and did it every six months or so, and told you how things were going? Would you believe that climate change was happening?" And then he said, "Yeah, I probably wouldn't." She said, "Well, that is the IPCC." Mm. And, you know, they have been warning about this mm. all the way through. I, I, I find it, I'm I'm also interested, and I'd be very interested for you to do something on this with us. Um, the whole area of climate uh, adaptation rather than mitigation is going to be enormous. The mitigation is going to be extremely difficult and require really tough action, which we're already seeing is not being taken, but mm. we're going to have to do some pretty phenomenal adaptation, including in New Zealand. He said living in Hearn Bay.
2: Sure, that's where a lot of work in development studies focuses, as well as on, you know, adaptation and resilience and so on. And um, that will be something I'm, I'm
0: really looking forward to over the next um, few months with Catherine to developing and investigating some of these, not, not so much solutions, but responses and ways in which we can do things, politicians can do things, voters can do things all around the, the world Catherine, thank you very much for coming on to the Hoon. And thank you very much for joining us at, at the Kaka. We're really looking forward to the, for, to the work ahead.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to get into it.
1: Thanks, Catherine. We, we have our other sidekick, or you know, at the, the friend of the podcast, as, as, as people say, <laughs> yeah, who, who knows well that there is really only one host. It's Robert Patman, Professor Robert <laughs> Patman from Otago. Hi, Robert. Hi, How are you? Peter.
3: Hi, Vernon. Hi, Catherine.
1: Hey, we want to ask you a really good thing about international affairs. Today. What the hell is going on with the Chinese foreign minister?
3: Well, that's a really interesting question. And the Mm. even more intriguing thing is the debate that's being allowed to run Mm. on Mm. the Chinese internet.
1: Yeah. Do you want to explain what we're talking about?
3: Uh, Qin Gang, the uh, Chinese foreign minister, has not been seen in public since the 25th of June. And there's feverish speculation in China about his position. Uh, some Chinese political commentators are openly saying from Beijing that this shows the delicacy or fragility of Chinese decision-making, that people can disappear without any explanation, mm. high-level officials, that there was a suggestion that he's in ill health. I bet he uh, That was that, that was made by- he's,
1: he's probably worried sick.
3: That <laughs> was made by a, a Chinese- He's most certainly indisposed. Foreign ministry spokesperson, but it wasn't- backed up in writing. The, the other thing that I think may be happening is that Gong may be the scapegoat for the fact that Xi Jinping took uh, took some steps which worsen relations with the United States and the rest of the world, tested support for Putin's mm-hmm. illegal invasion of Ukraine. And in a sense, this is, always happens with authoritarian regimes. It's not that Chin Gong did anything wrong. It may be that he actually obeyed the boss's instructions to the letter, but it's not working well out for the boss.
1: Yeah, but Robert, wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. The, 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 the claim here, particularly in uh, Hong Kong papers and the Times of London, is that is that the foreign minister has disappeared because he's been caught shagging uh, an extremely attractive um, Hong Kong-based television presenter who may well have had a uh, child out of wedlock with him. And she's been flying around to the United States in a private jet and sending cryptic messages out on, on Weibo, the Chinese Twitter, putting two and two together and coming up with foreign minister, right?
3: Well, uh, um, she may be well connected, uh, if you excuse the pun. But um, yeah, I mean, look, who knows? Uh, it's, for example, the Chinese leadership, many of them have colourful private lives and it hasn't stopped them... From exercising quite considerable power. Mm. Uh, my suspicion is that this is politically motivated. Yes, that may be the issue, but yeah. it may be that President Xi has decided that's an
1: issue. Yeah, but Chen Gang was also a, the, the sort of leading wolf warrior, wasn't he? So we, do you think we're going to see a change he in the tone? He
3: was a loyalist to Xi.
1: He was brought in
3: to be a wolf warrior mm. and he's loyal to Xi. But when your career depends on the boss, the boss can also unmake your career. Mm. My suspicion is that she may be preparing for an improvement relations with the United States. Mm. Instead, instead of saying, oh, sorry, guys, I got it wrong. I realize now that ah, I shouldn't have tacitly support. Change I, of
1: personality. I, um, I,
3: I, I know I realize I shouldn't have supported Russia's invasion of Ukraine and had the Samaritans suggest that it was legitimate. In fact, it was... I've got rid of the person who was contributing to this stuff up. And now, you know, we can go forward and perhaps better relations with the United States. That's a cynical view. But if you look at authoritarian regimes, that's often what happens. The person mm. at the top refuses to accept responsibility. And I mean, Mr. Putin does it all all the time. The scapegoats. Needs a full
1: guy. Mm. Yeah.
3: Uh, the buck doesn't stop. They want all the responsibility, none of the blame. And so, you know we don't know what's happened to the chinese foreign minister at the moment maybe he'll reappear next week and all will be well
1: but do, do you think that
3: wang li basically is the
1: chinese foreign minister now
3: it's very difficult to answer that question without knowing mm. uh, exactly what's happened to the current foreign minister shi Gang, Qing Gang, i should say and if he reappears then you know maybe he's just been unwell who knows mm. i mean with authoritarian systems you know there's always this r- r- rumor and speculation and It's it's very difficult to know what to believe.
1: Yeah, it was interesting this week, Robert. The uh, just uh, uh, to make a comparison with another authoritarian regime, the um, head of MI6, the international, the the overseas spy service of the UK, was in public this week and saying that um, even he he said almost literally, even when you're running MI6, you can't fully understand what on earth is going on in Russia. Because he was trying (laughs) to work out what had happened with Prigozhin, and he said, "You know, Prigozhin, you know, in the morning was declaring mutiny, by by the afternoon was being pardoned, and then two days later was coming in for tea at the Kremlin." So, you know, he said he was just he was scratching his head about what was going on. So, if if the head of MI6 is, then what are we to make to make of these things?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, authoritarian regimes do have their dynamics, and uh, it's very difficult, I think, for people working in a liberal democracy sometimes to make head or tail of it. And I think sometimes authoritarian leaders, because they have the ability to make and unmake careers with great rapidity, um, are not quite sure themselves. I, I think Mr. Putin clearly did a a complete somersault in the course of one day over Prigozhin. Um One moment he looked like he was a marked man. Mm-hmm. The next moment we heard that he would not face any legal prosecution. So... I, yeah. I think Putin's position is much weaker than it was, and I don't think that's changed. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Xi Jinping's position. We may also interpret the the foreign minister's disappearance with insecurities on the part of Xi mm. Jinping. Um, you know, whether Ching, Gang is seen as some sort of rival, I don't know. He was certainly a protege of Xi. Uh, Jinping, and uh, it may be that the boss has decided that his protege is getting a bit too big for his boots. I don't mm. know. It, it, there's various permutations here.
0: I think you're you're right, Robert, in that um, there is real vulnerability um, for Xi, as much mm. on the domestic front with the economy as yeah. there is yeah. on the international front. And one of the sort of news that's uh, bubbled up in the last week or two economically is that. Uh, Youth unemployment has again risen to another record high of well over Mm. 20%. Uh, there's been continued outflows of funds uh, from uh, China's foreign reserves, mm. which has forced the the People's Bank of China to intervene. There's more discussion about the government providing more subsidies for property developers and for first home buyers to try and fire up the housing market again. And uh, when you look at um, how consumers are spending money in uh, China, there's a lot of wariness and and uh, worried people. I mean, if you were in, in New Zealand or in Australia or the UK, it would be reflected in very bad consumer confidence, which often is the same as a measure mm. of the public's unhappiness with the government. Now, obviously you can't do that. <laughs> but it's a reflection of the, uh, the risks and the pain he's feeling domestically that on both the, the foreign front in uh, Russia and with the United States, but also domestically, he's under an awful lot of pressure.
3: I think the two are linked, though, Bernard, and I think you're quite right to draw the attention to the domestic Chinese economy, which is struggling. Um, Because, you know, the implication of the downturn in the Chinese economy is the fact the downturn in the Chinese economy means that China is becoming more dependent, not less, more dependent on the US market and Mm. also the EU market and Japan, the old markets which are well established for China. So, and that may be why Qing Gong is disappearing for the moment, because Xi Jinping is preparing uh, to warm up the relationship with the United States to get him out of this domestic mess yeah. that he finds himself in.
1: I would certainly hope-, hope for that, Robert. I mean, you're the expert, but it surely seems that. There is a limited time for Biden and she to improve relationships before it becomes a central issue of twenty twenty four and the US election campaign that you've got to get it onto a more even keel. I mean, we saw Kerry go this week go there mm. this week and have a somewhat I mean, he said it was an engaging meeting and a a sort of frank meeting about climate change. You've had Blinken go there. You've had Lloyd Austin, the Defence Secretary. And now, of course, we've got Blinken coming here, the Secretary of State coming here next week. I mean, this is a segue because apparently there is a very interesting New Zealand connection to the missing foreign minister trip, which I'm sure you've heard about, which is a rumour that I'm I'm just not going to repeat, but I'm dying to. But um, what do you think? Is the consequences or the implications of Blinken visiting New Zealand, particularly after you've had Chris Hipkins go to NATO? We've got Albanese coming next week, I believe, yeah. for the football uh, or yeah. soccer. You know, there's some interesting, there's some interesting sort of pressure and rewards for New Zealand about the yeah. slightly westward move that Kipkins has done, isn't there?
3: Uh, I think it's an interesting timing, and yeah, I mean. It, it, it... In a sense, I think they will be exchanging notes about China. Um, Nan- Nanaya Mahuta, by the way, if you saw the statement was mm. ex- from the Beehive, was extraordinarily warm about Blinken's yeah. visit, said that the US-New Zealand relationship is going from strength to strength. And she believes this visit from Antony Blinken will just continue that trajectory. So all very positive stuff. I, I do think they'll be discussing China. Um And the interesting thing is that Blinken's recent visit to China, uh, he said that the United States did not want to decouple from China. No. He was quite explicit. And I think that has created, um, you know, if you like, some fresh impetus for the improvement of the US China relationship. The whole question of AUKUS may be raised.
1: Maybe. Jesus, I would say it'd be item number two, wouldn't you?
3: <laughs> yes, I would think so. Yeah. I'm not convinced that it's a, a, a game changer for the Biden administration as far as New Zealand is concerned. According to some commentators here, if we don't join AUKUS, it could imperil our relationship with the United States. I don't think so.
1: No, I don't think so too. Maybe just as Megan Rapino playing next week, perhaps that's actually why he's coming to see the US football team.
3: Well, there's a bit of sporting diplomacy going on here, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, uh, it, it's it, it's an int- uh, it, by all accounts um, uh, the Biden administration rates New Zealand's contribution under this government highly. They were very warm, of course, in their relations towards uh, Jacinda Ardern. Uh, I think they quite like Chris Hipkins. I can't prove that, but that's no. just the sense I get. Of quite, uh, they think he handled himself quite well. In China. And I think the fact that he didn't simply echo Joe Biden's characterization of Xi Jinping as a dictator, I think that would have impressed them rather than if he simply said what Washington said. So, you know, in a sense, New Zealand brings something to the party uh, that may be of more value than if it was simply. An ultra loyalist,
1: yeah, which 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 dramatically increases the value of a uh, an Otago academic specialist in international affairs, because you know you'll get drawn into common... because we are the centre of the universe. We'll we'll make it the centre of the universe wow. so that. <laughs> hey, I was just going to say, just flicking for one moment back to back to a different scapegoat, which I'm scapegoating you, of course. Um, David Mooring, who's one of our regular regular listeners, um, m- pointed out something about about uh, Ukraine and Prigozhin. And I don't know whether you've seen, but Prigozhin has publicized the what he says are the number of deaths and um, injuries of uh, Wagner uh, mercenaries in uh, Ukraine. And it's an absolutely oh, yeah. gigantic percentage of the Russian losses. It's twenty thousand dead. Mm. and 40,000 injured. No wonder he was a bit irritated that he was having to bury so many prisoners.
3: But the Russian casualties generally of the Russian army are huge. Mm. And more than 100,000. We're not quite sure the precise amount. But the, the Wagner group really suffered a huge casualties in taking the back mm. foot. Mm. And the Ukrainians shook their head in disbelief at one point because they just kept pressing forward despite the appalling casualties they were taking. So they were using their forces as cannon fodder to some degree.
1: Particularly the prisoners. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary, because of, often, and I don't know whether you find this, Robert, as an armchair, um, I know you, you're actually not an armchair soldier, but you're, you're more of a you know highbrow international affairs person. But it's often when people get into casualties, it's very hard to distinguish between the dead and the injured and so on. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, saying we're sending two battalions in and you've got to look up how many people are in a battalion. It's you know to just to think of 20,000 young men being killed in that well, pretty much as a, as a mercenary force as well is pretty remarkable makes it makes your recruitment a tad difficult i would have thought
3: yeah but we shouldn't see mr progoshin as some sort of humanitarian figure he's raised this issue for political he reasons he cares about his men <laughs> well that's what he'd like <laughs> you to believe <laughs> he's a totally ruthless person yeah and there's nothing in his track record to suggest otherwise. Wherever Wagner has operated, uh, war crimes have been committed.
0: Mm. Now, just um, uh, pivoting to the, the bottom of the conflict uh, with the Black Sea, um, Robert, what did you think mm. this week of Russia's decision to pull out of its agreement that to allow safe passage of uh, Ukraine's grain exports through the Black Sea, which um, has again, for the first time in a while, um, you know. Forced through price changes onto global markets, uh, grain prices rose mm. ten percent week. Um, uh, what, what do you think is going on there?
3: Well, it, in a sense, uh, Mr. Putin has been threatening this move for a while. Um, I, I think he is basically trying to use food as a weapon. I mean, uh, Ukraine, you know, uh, is a major food provider. And there was the grain deal of July 2022, which enabled grain to, to, Ukraine to begin to start exporting grain again. Many of the poorest countries in the world, of course, were hit mm. when Ukraine was unable to export its grain. And of course, as soon as the grain deal was uh, brokered by the UN, grain prices and wheat prices generally fell quite substantially. And, and I think Mr. Putin sees... I think Mr. Putin's position. I think Putin's in a downward spiral now. He, on the one hand, he needs very effect, efficient military generals, uh, but that that raises political problems for him. On the other hand, those generals, which are compliant politically, are not performing particularly well. So he's he's looking at a range of instruments to try and apply pressure. I think this is a attempt to weaponize food. Mm. It's a dangerous one for Putin because, actually. You know, many of the countries which are going to be hurt by this,
1: um, he probably would need their support in an ideal world. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we we talked about you know the global South and Africa and mm. so on, and p- countries that have been at least equivocal on this. I, I thought it was also interesting from a strategic point of view, or at least a, a way of spreading the both the implications of the grain deal, but also opening a new front. These attacks this week in on Odessa, yeah. uh, on the grain silos, on the ports. Um, on hospitals you know it's pretty indiscriminate but odessa is a you know a highly potent symbol
3: yeah and, and by apparently according to reports 60,000 tons of grain was destroyed mm. and they didn't just target uh, grain loading facilities they actually targeted warehouses mm. so this is a huge attempt to cripple the ukrainians i think the fact that the russians have walked away from this deal does raise serious questions about NATO's willingness to actually stand up to Putin in the Black Sea. The Black Sea, despite what the Russians are doing, does not belong to them. The six countries, including three NATO members, Bulgaria, Romania, and Turkey... Which share the Black Sea?
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about this actually because it's you know it's the the you know the fact that Erdogan supported the membership of Sweden last week. Yeah, that um, you know it, and uh, Zelensky has this week asked Erdogan if they can still bring grain grain through the uh, yeah. Bosphorus, which they're doing still at the moment. That seems to me to be setting up something quite interesting for the support of those grain ships for the protection of those grain ships. And and there must be an interesting conversation being had between Erdogan and Putin, not that I've heard of one actually at the moment, but the Mm. the, um, Kremlin cannot be entirely happy with Erdogan right now.
3: No. And um, there was some speculation when Putin went for the grain deal in July 2022 that amongst other things, he was doing it not just to get brownie points from those parts of the world badly affected by the Russian invasion, but also to avoid the possibility of a naval collision. Or confrontation mm. with countries exercising their, you know, their their rights within the international waters. The British Navy had a near confrontation, didn't get all huge publicity with the Russians in June uh, this year. Uh, the British didn't back down, and uh, but it was a quite a, a dangerous episode.
1: Well, remember they also had the they also had the confrontation with the. Um, AWACS plane that they were flying over the over the Black Sea yes. theor- theoretically at, at an appropriate distance, but um, yeah, I mean, there's still pot- still potential for a lot of oh, yeah. um, intersection of these things. Robert, wh- what about this question of that we come to a lot, and I, I and I I feel it's not, but this the idea of it being a proxy war, I, I resist that because because it was an invasion, because it you know, yeah. it, but. It, You know, there is Ukraine can't really do anything at the moment without NATO or the United States' help. No, let's
3: be quite clear. Ukraine is the victim of an illegal invasion, but lots of other countries have a huge interest in uh, Ukraine being successful in repelling that invasion. If Mr. Putin keeps any territory, any diplomatic solution which hands a gain or a reward for aggression, that would have global reverberations which would be unfavorable for most middle powers and certainly, most small powers. Hmm. So, uh, if anything, uh, another thing I've noticed, by the way, um, uh, that's occurred is that it was announced today, and I think Bernard alerted me to this, that we've sanctioned more individuals yeah. in the Russian government, which coincides with Blinken's visit. Which, if anything, New Zealand's toughening its approach towards hmm. because it recognizes, I mean, for a country like ours, which depends so critically on the rule of law internationally um nothing but a full russian defeat oh, can i in just ukraine. answer
1: can I just let me just answer a question of david's no the the grain can't easily be taken by train to romania because there's a different gauge uh between um ukraine and the rest of europe including romania i believe they've tried this through the czech republic david and through poland and they have to um yeah. they have done some of it but they have to um uh change the you know pump the pump the Wheat from, from train to train. It's, um,
3: yeah, and it's much more expensive going through yeah. land. Yeah. Uh, you know, it adds costs, massively adds costs. And uh, you can imagine how frustrating it is for the Ukrainian government because obviously uh, it's hugely damaging to their economy mm. um, on top of all the, the expenses associated with war. But uh, I, I think it's a major challenge for NATO because under Article 5, they are pledged to come to the support. Of NATO members. And at the moment, uh, this illegal blockade is encroaching on the interests of
0: three NATO countries, Turkey, yeah. Yeah. Romania, and Bulgaria. So this is one to watch. And, and also, the, the other reason that um, the problem of not being able to export wheat through the Black Sea reverberates through Eastern Europe is that actually Poland uh, and a couple of other uh, neighbours have tried to ban... The export of Ukrainian wheat mm. into those countries because it's crashed prices um, in the the neighbouring states yeah. because and displaced are,
1: domestic production. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So those those um, farmers and you know in Poland farming's a huge part of the economy still those farmers are, are um, absolutely furious that the, the wheat's been dumped into their market um, because it is so expensive to move long distances by train for a lot of traders. They can just um, basically try to offload it in, pol- in the Polish market or uh, Romania or Bulgaria, and, and that's causing all sorts mm. of domestic grief as well. So it be interesting to see whether that um, rebounds into the, into the fray.
3: Oh yeah, I mean I think it's a move by Mr Putin that's you know certainly hurting Ukraine and its allies, but Mr Putin's got his own problems which is mounting chaos within the Russian army. Mm. There was a very good report this week by ISW and um on the war in Ukraine and uh um, there is a purge going on at the moment mm. within the Russian military at the most highest levels and nice. um many of these people were uh, regarded as pr- pro-mutineers mm. or people who were sick of Putin's conduct of the war. We've discussed this before, but there has been underlying resentment of Putin's conduct of the war amongst the Russian military. Uh, they don't have faith in his judgment, some of them. And of course, he's replacing them with people who are politically compliant. There also seems to be resentment now uh, amongst those units that have been pretty effective, seeing their commanders removed yes. for political reason. That's is all you know morale has been a problem in the Russian army, and I can't see it getting better in the near future.
1: Robert, what's your what's your sense for timing? You know, we've got summer is you know we're sort of mid near to, near to midsummer in Europe. There'll yeah. be what two two or three months of reasonable traction on you know on on the battlefield again, not to not to turn you into an armchair. Uh, but no. uh, we, we've got to get some movement, right?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, but I think the Ukrainians are working towards, I mean, they re, interestingly, their attacks on the Kerch Bridge have <laughs> flared up again. Mm. They are continuing to hit Russia on a daily basis um, in Russian key uh, strategic locations, both in Russia itself, but also in Ukraine. And this is happening in sort of routine fashion now. That's going to have a sapping effect. Um I, I don't know. I think poss- it's very difficult to predict. They will be getting F-16s in September. Mm. Um, so I, I think realistically for this counterweight to have a cumulative effect, we're probably looking three or four months into the counteroffensive, mm. which probably takes us around to about October, November. But I, I do think Mr. Putin's in serious trouble. And uh, I think the prigozhin rebellion, it's been dealt with for the moment, but the ripples the after effects could further weaken Putin's hold on power.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure you look at it, Robert, but for our audience, and I've I've mentioned this in my spin-off thing, which there's actually quite a quite a uh Venn diagram between people who listen to the Kaka and the Hoon and who follow my spin-off thing oddly. Um, the Mark Gagliotti podcast, um under uh, in Moscow's Shadow is which I'm sure you listen to is very good on all of this. No, he's, he's slightly excellent. He's slightly pompous and a bit sort of one directional, but... Um, I'm sure he thinks the same about you, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he, he doesn't know I exist. He's, he's not a big listener to the, to the, to the Kaka or the Hoon yet.
3: No, he's extraordinary. And um, Mark's been around a long time, but he's
1: a very good, I think, a very balanced commentator on Russia. Mm. And I'm dusting off all of my Simon Sebag Montefiore st- books about Stalin and reading them again.
3: But he he does also subscribe to the view. If I I hope I'm not putting words into his mouth, but it, might, I think that, I think he does feel that Putin is now facing an uphill struggle.
0: Absolutely, mm-hmm. Robert. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Robert, for coming onto the show. Thank it's you, pleasure having you on again for a slightly extended um, thank session. Thank fantastic, and we look forward to to next week as well. Lovely to have you. Thank you. Cheers. See you, Robert. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah.
1: Now Bernard, everybody's saying we need to run a bloody give a little to get you a decent. You've got a decent travelling road, Mike. I know you have, and and Mm -hmm. decent headphones and everything. Did you just not pack your bag properly, like I told you to? Uh,
0: Well, I actually. I should have
1: come. Did I not come down and do your do your packing?
0: (laughs) No, I I have it, and uh, it it for some reason didn't work here in a different environment. Hopefully, the sound isn't too bad. Are there complaints? It's not too bad, but it's but but um, we're getting complaints from you know
1: everybody now that Simon's on the case, and we've all got and I've got my. You know, Bernard, yep. my Bernard um, mm. contraption here. Um, everybody's complaining that you know because they want the usual top quality. I actually, prefer- I like the rustic aspect, and the you know we need to do it from the car again at some point. Ah, yeah. People are saying, of course, it's your internet connection, but I doubt very much whether five
0: G is reached to you. I'll move to you. No, you know, actually, or certainly some- not your parents and laws house. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, no, I'm sure a lot of it will be cleaned up in post. And, uh, mm-hmm. and this is one of the oh, oh, but oh, you're pushing this to
1: Simon. Poor old Simon. Jesus.
0: No, I mean it, the, the recorded version of the hoon is a fantastic improvement. I always think of the raw, rustic version. And why um, does he edit me out? No, no, no. He edits out uh, the bad sound. It's fantastic.
1: Yeah. Now, do, so, speaking of speaking of hoon episodes and being edited out, I was really struck. I mean, I, I've got some feedback f- directly from a couple of our listeners who uh, follow me also because of the spin-off thing. But people seem to really like that um, solutions journalism session with Corinne Podger last week uh, and and your sort of commitment to it. Although I, th- I, you know, I don't think you're going to follow the sort of principles totally rigidly, but this idea at least of being a bit more sort of positive and explanatory. Our comments about solutions journalism were picked up this week by the lovely Colin Peacock from RNZ's Media Watch show on the on the midweek, and I thought that was very generous in fact, that you know that, that he even noticed that we were there. Well, I me, mean, of course, he noticed you, you there, and in fact, was hugely complimentary about your impact on New Zealand journalism. But Thank you. what are you thinking now that you're, I was quite struck? The Herald had a big piece by Alex Spence, who I know quite well, the investigative editor, about Christopher Luxon this week, which was a you know quite a thoughtful, in depth piece about this person and their motivations. What, what's, what have you thought about since the last week?
0: Yeah, uh, no. increasingly, I see an opportunity for us to um, look at some of the solutions to the problems that we've got as much to give us uh, something positive to focus on. But also, I think a lot of the solutions uh, in the far distant past bubbled up from the political environment. So you'd have hmm. political parties coming up with new ideas to try and solve problems and hoping to get elected. And sometimes they did. However, with the stalemate we now have in our politics, where um, the main parties take a uh, so-called um, low target approach to getting into government, they, mm. they uh, essentially uh, argue that whoever's in government is—it's all about competency to run the existing yeah. rule. It's not necessarily about changing the rules. And, um, and so you end up with this bizarre standoff, a type of a trench warfare in politics where no one wants to jump over the top and have a go and have a risk, take a risk, because it's so easy to be shot down when you come up with a new yes. idea and that means that you don't see these you know slightly risky but new ideas bubble up within the political system now that's understandable and you certainly see in uh, other countries bigger countries a lot of those ideas come instead from the think tanks they come from you yeah. know the left or the right and they come from academia but unfortunately because of our scale but also i think because new zealand's quite small and if you get to a point in new zealand's Elite, so to speak, the Kuru Lounge class, as I call it. Um, you have to be careful what you say, otherwise. Can you fly to Tiomanutu, Bernard?
1: No, you could probably fly Fletcher. You know, you, you could borrow somebody's Fletcher, get get the superphosphate out of it, and put linen in the
0: hopper and fly down yourself. No, I don't want to. I don't want to pull a lever on that at all. Um, no, yeah. uh, but um, certainly there's there's an opportunity for us there because of this gap that's opened up in New Zealand. It's very difficult to speak out, to come up with new ideas, to take a risk. And we've, we've got an opportunity to do that. And I'm very lucky, we're very lucky that Catherine has uh, joined us to work part-time to do some of this sort of in-depth solutions focused journalism, um, yeah. where, where we say, hey, this is one of the ideas that's come up. Maybe it's an idea that's come up from overseas, but hasn't been mentioned here yet. And we- yeah, actually, we, yeah, so very,
1: we, we should get Ref Manji on again, because I think he is, you know, whatever, whatever one thinks of top, they're an interesting sort mm. of set of provocateurs. Bernard, somebody, uh, Anne is asking us to talk about the UK by-elections, and Andy is asking us to talk about Vox in Spain, which is fucking ridiculous. We can't cover the entire... Globe, but we will just try. But on the journals, can we? We'll get there in a second. But just try on the journalism thing. Uh, One of the other points that Colin Peacock made was about whether 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 the coverage of this awful infanticide trial in Timaru is too intrusive. And I was really struck by this. Thinking, I mean, I have listened to some of it. I'm not hanging on its every word, but this is all really powerful evidence. This is a very visceral story, and my sense is that actually things like the fact that the person uh who is who was on trial had seventeen in vitro fertilization attempts you know this 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 is all mitigation and explanation, which is normal in the case. you know I, the interest seems to be fair to me. I doesn't see the coverage doesn't seem gratuitous to me,
0: not that it's particularly been on our show yet. yeah, there has been some criticism that it's some sort of um uh, ghoulish investigation or or exposition of someone's private pain, and that this is not real journalism, and that um, we should give the the situation a lot more space and not cover it so aggressive- well, it's court-
1: re- It's not so much journalism as court reporting, which is a bit of a lost art. I mean, we're, we're both friends. I think with uh, my old mate Wendy Murdoch, who's been a court reporter for the for the Post and stuff for I think now nearly forty years. You know, th- this is important work.
0: Yeah, and also you've got to remember that the court process does provide some guardrails against uh, what you could call um, speculative or sensational material. Remember, a lot of the evidence has been tested yes. before. We're seeing it on the screen. And also there are rules inside the courtroom about what journalists can and can't report and, and yeah. also how they report it. So, for example, the husband's testimony uh, via video from Pretoria um the video of him speaking was not allowed to be replayed as it was. Mm. Um, they had a, an actor uh, reciting the the, uh, the text from, the, um, from that. And also, there are pretty strict rules about uh, the video uh, that can be replayed of the accused. And there's been reports that um, she broke down in tears at various points during the testimony. But mm. that was not shown in, in television. And I think that's a good thing. No, well,
1: David asks about the point. The, the, what purpose, David Morrig again? What 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 purpose does the level of detail serve the public interest? So, I, I think David, to some extent, and we may disagree about this, and I, and I might disagree with myself next week or possibly in five minutes. You know, some of the detail we've seen, such as her seventeen in vitro attempts, they're important mitigating contributing factors to the climate that the that her lawyers are trying to create around the case and the. Plea that she's made of um, insanity and and that it was infanticide. Anyway, Bernard, what do you let's let's move off this off this topic. So yes, Anne French asks, how on earth did the Tories in the UK hang on to RiceLip? And uh, what's kind of interesting about so there's been I think three by elections today. Labour has had the biggest uh, majority win, the biggest overturning, the biggest Tory majority it's ever turned over from a 20,000 Tory majority to, I think, a 5,000 uh, Labour majority. But in Reislet, in Boris Johnson's uh, former electorate, um, the Tories have won again. And the person who won says it's nothing to do with national national uh, things or competence. It's to do with the London mayor expanding the ULES, the ultra low emission zone, which is creeping further and further out towards the M25 to the point where I believe now if I bought my 1984 Renault into the centre of London now, I might have to take it out by the end of the evening and pay a fine for it, which is outrageous. So anyway, so yes, I think the Tories are stuffed, but the confidence in uh, Keir Starmer is, is not high. So best thing you can do is listen to the other excellent podcast, Uh, The rest is politics with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, who are almost as famous as Bernard and Pedro. Uh, And yeah, I think the the Spanish election is incredibly interesting. The right could do very well. And I'm afraid it is all about immigration there.
0: Ah. Are you allowed to vote in that?
1: In Spain? Yeah. I think I used to be allowed to vote in... Well, I I was allowed to vote and I never did, but I was allowed to vote in the local elections in Spain, when the um, when Britain was in the EU, so EU citizens in the UK used to be able to vote in local elections, but not national ones.
0: That point about immigration—I know it's a long way away—and you could argue why should we care, but actually, the one thing I got a sense of uh, going through—oh, um... are we getting
1: your—are we getting your instant analysis of your recent trip to Europe, Bernard? Uh, yeah, I talked to a few people. And... Go for it. Go for it. I the bloody vacation... love doing this. I told yeah, you yeah. about my trip to well, Northland.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. And, and tragically, while we were on the Greek island, another Greek island had a ship full of yeah. North uh, African uh, refugees um, capsized horribly. And Well, it wasn't a Greek island. It was Greece, for
1: Christ's sake. It was, was Kalamata, yeah, where they were hauled into. Yeah. And
0: um, what it struck me 500 is 500 people may have died in that. What struck me is that Europe sort of understandably, it's dawning on them that climate change is pushing hundreds of millions of people north. Exactly. To, and and they, do, they don't know how to handle it. I mean, you could do the whole uh, Angela Merkel thing of inviting people in to lower your the age of your population and get some economic vigor back mm. in. But um, you can see why the Spanish and the French and the Italians and the Greeks are a little bit freaked this is what climate change will do it absolutely will...
1: no 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 it is it is it's climate change will make it even worse, and also the refugee streams or the the uh, migrant streams have shifted tremendously because of the war in in uh, Yemen, and you know lots of these people are from Pakistan from uh Iran they are not um Africans necessarily coming up through mm. the more logical places through Libya and everything. These people are from all sorts of places because they're uh, smuggling routes have been so disrupted. It is a fascinating problem and a gigantic problem, and it'll get worse because you know this week we've got I think elections in the Central African Republic uh, mm. supervised by Wagner. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> to go back to the <laughs> early story, you know, there's some there's some really serious shit still going down in Mali, Central African Republic. Um, oh, let's have a good news story though. Oh yeah, good, good, good. That ship, I think, which I wrote about for Spinoff, and we may have talked about. With, uh, it's, the, it's one of the largest oil tankers ever built, and it sits off Yemen as a permanent platform collecting oil from the Yemeni oil fields. It hasn't been maintained for nearly 10 years and has been uh, just neglected during the Civil War. The pumping operation to pump its oil out and make sure it doesn't go into the Red Sea started this week. So good on the UN for getting that one done well, at least yeah. it's on its way. Unless we hear a quite a large, bat, large bang, um, there's a good, good news story there, which is mm. the UN can do things, and we may have just avoided one of the great environmental catastrophes ever. Now, do we want a skateboarding dog? Absolutely. Donut?
0: I haven't heard this one, so I'm looking. And for I'm it.
1: trying to make this. I'm going to try to make this one tasteful, which is quite hard. And we know all of the you know the Florida man and Florida woman, st- Florida man stories, which is when anything incredibly stupid that could only happen in America happens, it's usually a Florida man story. So this is a Florida woman nice. who's been arrested because she posted on a uh, rather extraordinary parody site called rentahitman.com to hire a hitman and was not not surprisingly arrested. Quote, she was in a hurry to get this done, close quotes, Bob Ennis, the website's owner, told the Miami Herald. So ah. that's happened. But a very clever friend of mine posted uh, an, another thing about this, which you know, it's so obviously a fake site, but it constantly gets people asking to actually deliver hitmen. Uh, and it even has endorsements from people who you know, who say that they have hired hitmen through the site in the past and that they've done a good job. And one of them was about hiring a hitman to to offer landlord and said, you know, job done. You know, I'm a satisfied customer.
0: Huh? So, so is it like a star system? Can you rate your hitman? Yeah, you know?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. But it's all fake. But, but, you know, Florida men and women get drawn into it. I'm just happy to help, said the guy who s-
0: serves the site. I must say I'm really missing Colbert and um, the other American uh, late-night comedians who would normally make a big deal of this sort of story.
1: Yeah, but Bernard, I I think I'm one of the few people in the entire world who absolutely hates all of those late-night American television shows. I hate Trevor Noah's show. I hate John Oliver's show. I find them all completely fake and ridiculous and irritating. So there we go. There's my admission. But as you know, I had the smallest TV in the whole of New Zealand <laughs> and I seldom even turned it, turn it on.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to Colbert when he gets back and um, if, the, if the strike ever ends. So we'll see how it goes. Hey, it's been wonderful. Bernard, to be- it's so good to see you. We
1: need to get you a bloody – I mean, these people want to hear you in all of your glory and we now know it's possible. If I can do the bloody thing from Perugia, then you can do it from fucking Te, Te Aumutu.
0: I'll work on that and Simon will clean it up and post. Yeah, and poor old Simon will edit me out and edit you in, I know. <laughs> Ka to everyone. Have a great weekend. Thanks
1: very much, everybody. Bye-bye.